You're listening to the Bloodsucking Feminists, your number one Kiwi Scottish podcast focused on the three F's, fangs, feminism, and fangirling. I'm Catherine. And I'm Keely. And you're listening to episode 30, Tarantino, The Ed, or From Dusk Till Dawn. I mean, yeah, it's it's very edgy. Is that a term? Because I don't know how else to describe it, really. Tarantino's Ed, let me show you it. Or let him What's show you it, What's all this Ed all over the floor? All this Ed and no shoes. I know, and then just the whole drinking the alcohol as it goes down her feet. I was like thinking, one, well, there's the foot fetish sequence, and two, that can't be sanitary. Can you tell Tarantino wrote this movie? Doesn't direct it, but he wrote it. Uh, Isn't it directed by the guy who did um, Shark Boy and Lava Girl, starring our favorite, not not actually Native American? You know who's Grinch? This is the guy that goes on Desperado. Since the A was like all for even for kind of like awful and hugely sexist like that's actually a recurring theme like i feel like a lot of this stuff is kind of awful and hugely sexist and i'm still like but i kind of really like it because i was also for this movie um but before we get into that i feel like we should talk about the elephant in the room which is um this movie is produced by miramax formerly of bob and harvey Rainstein. so yeah, we to be without well, we picked it before the harvey Weinstein news broke um, you know, one of those kind of coincidences that happens. For those of you who have been under the rock, uh, mega producer and distributor Harvey Weinstein has been yeah. unveiled after many decades of discussion, rumor, and open secret as being probably one of the most notorious predators in the industry, or he was at least until James Toback was outed as one as well. Uh, so us talking about this subject felt... Well, we felt we needed to add a disclaimer just because it's not just that it's distributed by this monster but the entire discussion going on around him and what everyone knew and the writer of the film Quentin Tarantino and the director Robert Rodriguez have been doing I think a little like discussion that you know isn't relevant to this podcast and I don't want to get too off topic um but it was certainly something that we did wonder about in terms of like should we go forward with this episode is not that you know the tens and tens of you that listen to us would really mind but you do worry about, you know, how much oxygen you're giving shit like this. I think it does sort of tie in, though, with one of the aspects of the film, which is men who know that someone in their midst is a rapist and, and know that fact, but don't do anything really about it, you know. As long as they're not a rapist, Yeah, I'm given okay. that, that's the thing is... We're going to end up talking about that anyway, because it's kind of a big theme in the movie, and it's just a thing that I think men, not to generalise you all dudes, but it's something that we need to have a conversation about anyway. So, in short, Harstein is a rapist pig. Yeah. Anyway, so, since this is your favourite film, I'll let you do the... It's not my favourite film. It's a film that I have Well, you like of. it. No, I do like the film. It is. I, I grew up with a, a big Tarantino fan for a dad. Uh, so it's a big film in my family in terms of... It's it, 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 just in watching. It's on TV or it's on Netflix or whatever, and they've got, they want to watch something, but they don't know what they want to watch. This is what they go for. Every time I feel a lot of films, but this is the only one with vampires in it that they go for constantly. 
very much a film of uh, the 90s. This is an era of the industry where the indie market is experiencing a really fascinating boom, where there's a whole new generation, this kind of really very specific style of filmmaking, which is how you get people like Tarantino, how you get people like who made his debut as a director with a film called Mariachi, mostly for $7,000. He basically rented himself out as a mega guinea pig, testing a bunch of drugs on him, and that's how he got the money, and that's how he made the movie. Uh, but watching, especially the well, the special effects section in the later half of the movie, uh, a lot of the special effects did remind me of the early Peter Jackson and Weta works. Uh, things like uh, Brain Dead slash Dead Alive, which is the zombie film done by Peter Jackson, and which is then and other sort of things. Honestly, I was disappointed that there was no no I kick ass for the Lord kind of sequence in this movie because that would have been awesome. That's <laughs> a very New Zealand thing. Although this movie does have the undead mariachi band, who I quite like. Well, no mariachi band, they're like the sort of like rock mariachi band that keep playing. There is a vampire massacre going on. And the guitar suddenly becomes a dead guy's corpse. Because obviously it does. I'm just like, how, how does that even work? But uh, I think they're all about the aesthetics rather than the... Which is weird because the aesthetic of this movie is yeah. basically grunge. It's like Latino grunge. I mean, the cinematography of this film is by Guillermo Navarro, who is the go-to photographer for Guillermo del Toro. Also worked on Breaking Dawn movies, but I like him best because he's a director on Hannibal. <laughs> well, anything's an improvement of working on Breaking Dawn. So from 1996, it is very much this kind of that era of like these scrappy young indie upstarts. But it's also after, you know, because they both made they made a name sell but in the case of you know Quentin Tarantino he's now an Oscar winner by this point in time he you know is a you know a palm d'or and Oscar winning filmmaker because of Pulp Fiction so I think this is the first film he makes after that I yeah I think it's the first film he makes after Pulp Fiction and it's you know it's a pure manifestation of it I mean it's thought that he could have hidden that he definitely can't. Because, especially because by this point in time, you know, we, everyone's seen that moment in Pulp Fiction, which is the close-up on the house listening to Dusty Springfield, or the entire discussion that John Travolta and Phil Jackson have about whether or not it's technically cheating to give someone a foot rub. Way so much it. So we all know by this point in time. Or at least people are starting to suspect, and it's like, do you think Tarantino has a bit of thing for, for feet, maybe? And this movie's just him going, yeah, I do. <laughs> there is a moment, you just feel like Freud would be watching this and be like, dude, come on. I mean, he's, he's not a subtle filmmaker. He's never been a subtle filmmaker. You know, which you don't have to be. There is a bit of that. Um, I'm just f fascinated by, like, what... Yeah, that, that is just... <laughs> awkward to watch. It's like... Almost like he, he's undressed and starts waving everything around. It's, it's that blatant. Subtlety, man. Subtlety. Uh, there's a difference between being, you know, full, full obvious and and in your face and really blunt about things, and having then having playing a character who drinks alcohol off Summer Hayek's feet. 
True story, she had to be hypnotized for that scene. Not for the feet, for the snake. Alma Hayek is definitely afraid of snakes, and they had to hypnotize her and put that thing on her. And they also had to tell her that um, Madonna was looking at the role, so she'd be motivated enough to go, okay, I'm going to get over my fear of snakes. So the basic plot is, well, it's actually two plots kind of shoved together. Two and a half, maybe. Uh, the basic opening is that there are two bank robbers um, on the run from the law, and they have to get across the border to Mexico, where they're basically going to be staying in what is a like safe town for criminals. But one of them is a gigantic fop and rapist. And keeps fucking their ship and leaving a trail behind them to the point where they can't cross the border safely uh, or without being noticed or raping anyone. So they hijack the caravan of a family of called Fullers. Harvey Keitel is a pastor who's lost his faith. There's Juliet Lewis, who's the daughter, wondering why the hell they can't go on a normal holiday, which is a fair question. And then there's the son, who doesn't really seem to have much of a personality. They help them cross the border against their will, and they end up in a bar. <laughs> uh, the bar's called the Teddy Twister. <laughs> oh, Quentin, you had fun, right? So they have to spend the night there, and then all of a sudden, vampires. Which, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, that's not a surprise. Uh, imagine going to see this film in 1996, not knowing anything about it. You're like, hey, it's a film by the guy who did Pulp Fiction. I like Pulp Fiction, and it's the guy off ER. Sweet, I'm going to go see that movie. And then... Okay, you're a guy watching it, and along comes Selma Hayek. You're like, yep. And then everyone turns into horrible vampires. Well, their faces seem to turn into horrible vampires. Most of them still seem to be pretty sexy naked ladies. Most of them, yeah. There are a couple who are a bit more monstrous. But yeah, like the, the racks are still like tight, you know? Um, we should say as well, if you've never... Um, if you're going to see this movie, even if you'd... I actually haven't seen the trailer, so I don't know if the trailer's give anything away, but the poster has, like, sort of a grindhouse-style poster of Tarantino and George Clooney with a big gun, the bar in the background, but it doesn't say that the bar's called the Tight Twister, I don't think you put that on the poster. And there's bats flying out of it, and the tagline is, all this stands between them and freedom is one night, but it's going to be one hell of a night. Like, there's, there's hints, but it's... It's not like some movies today where they're like, this is totally a secret, but also totally this is what's going to happen. Yes. Not a... I mean, it's obviously a pretty big surprise. But it's kind of a winner-takes-all situation, I think. And it's probably the... One of the more satisfying ways to watch a rapist die. Oh, George Clooney's really good. This is kind of like his first major role as after ER, and he's awesome. It's like coolest role ever. I get the feeling maybe you know Ken wanted that role. It's like no, you can't pull that off. And it became a challenge. You know the actors like always playing nice guys, and then he shows up as the villain, and you're like, because he's totally not the you know the 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 doctor heartthrob of of his previous role, which is part of the reason why it works. Because you keep thinking, no, George Clooney, no. kind of action movie tropes they're going for here. Uh, there's a lot of Robert Rodriguez's early movies in here. It's not quite as pop culture quippy as a lot of Tarantino's work is. Like, you get the feeling that, that um, George Clooney from Dust Dawn is probably a little too cool 
to really be in any of Tarantino's other movies. So, an interesting fit. But he also does have the greatest tattoo in this movie. Apparently, he'd just seen Once Were Warriors. Uh, and that's why he wanted the tattoo. Oh, nothing like a little late cultural appropriation. Eh? Yeah, which is... So, for those of you who aren't aware, Once Were Warriors is the um, adaptation of a book by a New Zealand Māori author called Alan Duff. It's about the uh, a family living in Auckland where the lead sort of character, well, the, the, the central focus character, one of them anyway, Jake the Mus, is a very violent and controlling individual in the family and it's about the rest of the family sort of breaking apart. Um, which I think is interesting that he did take inspiration, air quotes, from watching Once Were Warriors, uh, which is culture which has importance placed on tattoos. Because Timura Morrison, the actor who played Jake the Muss in Once Were Warriors, was in, uh, I think it's the third movie, Hangman's Daughter. He is the father of said Hangman's Daughter. So he's the hangman. <laughs> Uh, I haven't actually seen the sequels. There are two sequels to this movie, and then there is a kind of alternate universe reimagining TV series, which is on the LV Network. I haven't seen any of them. Is he still a rapist in the TV show? I don't know. Because that's kind of a... That would be kind of a turn-off for me. Because I haven't seen it, so... I'll need to check. I, I hear the show's pretty major peak TV. I don't have fucking time. But that's... It. I mean, the basic... The central relationship of the film is between Seth and Richie Gekko, who are the, the brothers, uh, George Clooney and Quentin Tarantino. Richie is played by Quentin Tarantino, and he's basically a psychotic rapist. Like, Seth isn't a good guy either, but... He's a bastard, but he's not a fucking bastard, is the line of the, end of the movie, which... He's the guy who will turn a blind eye to some guys raping, but not do the raping himself. Which, you know, fuck you! You just, like, shake his head disapprovingly. Yeah, I mean, those people suck. Those people are fucking, you know, complicit. When he comes back from getting his burgers for him, his brother, on the hostage, and he realizes his brother is killed and ra has killed and raped, or raped and killed, or ki raped, killed, and raped the hostage, his reaction is more like, you idiot, you burned the pots again trying to cook dinner. I've told you a hundred times don't try and cook dinner because you keep burning everything and you'll set the house on fire. Not, you just raped and killed a woman. Yeah, there is kind of like the, oh darn, you did it again element to it. He doesn't like it, but he's still, he doesn't like it, but he's still gonna, you know, get his brother across the border. Partly because it'll save his own neck, but also partly because that's his brother and he's got this sort of twisted notion of family loyalty, even for... I think it would work the other way around. I don't think he seems that interested. Yeah, and also, you keep watching it, it's like, okay, if you want to get out of here and, you know, live a life free of the cops and everything, one of the best things you could do is drop your brother. Here's one of the biggest problems you have right now. You could have gotten away quiet in the beginning, but no, your, your brother decided, I'm going to shoot everyone, because he imagined something. Yeah, I mean, we, we are sort of, it's hinted at that he is suffering from some sort of mental delusions. There is a scene where they are in the back of the, like, the camper van, and he basically imagines Julia Lewis saying to him, would you mind basically fucking me? Um, to put it 
more politely than he does. Um, and then he kind of asks her later, is that offer still on the table? And she has absolutely no idea what he's talking about. So then you've got the impression that maybe he doesn't even realise he's a rapist. You know, he probably knows he's a killer, but... But that's thing is that would have been a really interesting element to go into, because how many men who are accused of rape generally what they did as rape? Oh, well, she was drunk, so, you know, but she still definitely said yes. Oh, she was, of course she was consenting, even though she didn't say anything. Her eyes totally said yes. She didn't say no. Oh, she led me on, that kind of thing. You know, I mean, there's definitely a way to explore it there. I wouldn't trust that story in Tarantino's side of my life depended on it, but, you know, there's an idea there. Nope. Yeah, there's definite idea of, look, he's a rapist, and therefore he's bad, and therefore he has to die. But then it's like, why... Why are you still making him one of the guys we're supposed to be supporting? See, I wonder how much we are supposed to. I, I don't know if the movie, either movie can't make up its mind or it's trying deliberately to be some sort of a, a level of ambiguity. But, I mean, I think the, the, the person you're supposed to root for is George Clooney. But also Harvey Keitel and Juliet Lewis. And the son, but we never really... He doesn't have a personality, so... At one point, he is very much... Um, I'm a teenage, straight teenage boy who's ended up in a bar full of naked women. <laughs> He's like... Oh yeah, he does seem excited by that. Um, there is a moment where Richie says to him, look, if there's anyone you want to know, just say and I'll get a dance for you. And he looks delighted. He's like, he's like, okay, I'm just going to make the best of the situation. I'll have another drink, please. <laughs> I've never seen so many boobs in my imagination, let alone my life. There's a lot of tits. There is a lot of so tits. Much tits. Which is interesting because Tarkin is so much more interested in the feet. <laughs> he's like, okay, crap. What is every, what every other straight male I'm making this movie for interested in? But of course, having so many naked women in a vampire film means that you end up staking them right through the chest, which again puts focus on that. And it, it's just like... Ugh. So it's not even like, well, we're in a bar called the Titty Twister, there's going to be women in the background. No, they're right there. Yeah, uh, I'm currently doing... Well, I d just did uh, Laura Mulvey for uh, film studies. Laura Mulvey is the f um, film critic and philosopher who basically came up with the concept of the male gaze. Or at least defined it in terms that we know of now. And there's a lot of like elements of her original theory that don't stand up to scrutiny. She has gone back and revisited it. But the basic tenet of film is made like, even the camera is a piece of equipment that is made for men by men and the way that it objectifies particular women or for a particular kind of consumption it's like oh yeah this movie but then it tries to dress up as strong female character because they also kill people in the most literal way <laughs> yeah and there's at least one point where it's specifically in Richie's gaze, there's several points where it's specifically in Richie's gaze, and not just in his creepy imaginings of uh, Kate asking him to service her when she's a teenager. It's, it's like the scene where it looks like you, you're seeing Summer Hayek's character uh, from Richie's gaze, like the camera is literally taking his head where his head is and looking up at her. It's not just the male gaze, it's a specific male's gaze in that, in that moment. It's Quentin's gaze, basically. 
Not enough feet, but getting close. I mean, it's interesting, given that he hasn't directed this movie, how much it falls in line with... I mean, I wouldn't say it's all necessarily his visual sensibility, because there is nothing this sort of overtly male-gazy, in my opinion, in the rest of his filmography. Like, there is a lot of feet, particularly Uma Thurman's feet, um, throughout his films, but there's not, like, this level of tits. Yeah, there's, like, so much tits. Like, this is scuzzy genre horror version of Tarantino, as imagined by Robert Rodriguez, who's very much the filmmaker of the, you know, B-movie, Grindhouse, Cinemax era. The kind of thing that you watch on television on some channel you've never heard of at, like, three in the morning. Yeah, I honestly, when I was watching some of those sequences, I was thinking back to the time I saw Lesbian Vampire Killers. And I was just thinking, okay, I was trying to decide, okay, which movie has more breasts? Hmm. Um, Lesbian Vampire Killers or this movie? I still... <laughs> but it was it was that level of so many boobs. But here's your choice. I mean... Naked objectified women and occasional fun violence, or naked objectified women and James Corden. Lesbian vampire killers does have one of the doctors, and the the woman, Mayana Buring, who was who I really like in uh, White no oh Ripper Street. I was thinking Whitechapel, but that's a different show. Yeah, but this movie has a character called Sex Machine. Yeah. But I really like the score in Lesbian Vampire Killers. It's really, really pretty. I know. <laughs> a cheap B-movie has a fantastic, really stunning, pretty score with Hayley Westerner on vocals. It's really made for the wrong movie, but it's gorgeous. I quite like the score to this movie as well. I enjoy that there is a band that just keeps playing as the carnage unfolds. <laughs> and then it's like, oh crap, you gotta turn on us. Well, fuck you, we're out! <laughs> When we talk about the women in this movie, there is this sort of interesting, like, knot to untangle. Because ba almost every woman in that movie is objectified, except for Juliette Lewis and a couple of the vampires who look like hogs. <laughs> you have this, this power system at play where it does seem to be that the vampires are a matriarchal system. And they are kind of acting in terms of, like, the, the classic trope of almost like a rape-revenge fantasy. Not explicit rape-revenge fantasy, but more in the aspect of these men are stupid and we're going to use their absolute, you know, pig-headed ignorance and horniness against them, which is an interesting idea. But is Tarantino the right person to do that? That's a... No. <laughs> no. Not a million years, but that's something. This is also through the, the the lens of a guy who thinks all of that stuff, all of the tits, all of the violence, all of the feet are genuinely cool, without interrogation. Because there's probably a version of this movie somewhere, like a ver a version of this script where the vampire there's no vampires, whereas them ending up in some scuzzy, maybe not even a strip bar, just like a scuzzy border town bar where everyone is a criminal. And maybe they end up in a shootout at the end of the night to get out, you know? Like, there's probably a version of that movie somewhere which has a more explicit exploration of the moral quandaries at play. Maybe it's one where Seth refuses to take his brother's shit anymore. Or maybe it's one where they, you know, explicitly deals with the fact that he's an actual rapist. Um, 
And I would be interested to see it, because I feel like maybe that's a movie Tarantino could do. Yeah, but... Especially with the sticking two halves together to make a whole... It... I think almost like the vampire sequence sort of shows up too late. And then a lot of it ends too quickly. Like, for all the advertisement of um, Selma Hayek's character, Santanico Pandemonium... Which is a great name. And her big entrance scene and everything. And then she's dead pretty quick. Because it takes them so long because it takes so long to get to the vampire stuff. And then you you meet your vampire queen and you think, okay, this she's going to really really just bring them to heel, especially our rapist Richie, which you could tie into that sort of um, you've wandered into the the, 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 the victim's lair sort of thing. And then it's over. Her her entire sequence is over super quick. She's there to be looked at, turn ugly, and then be killed. And then the rest of it just turns into your classic, we've got to survive the night zombie type film, except with uh, monstrous play type vampires as the zombies in question. That is a huge missed opportunity. And I think Robert Rodriguez knows that because he does go and make a prequel in which he is a major character, and I believe in the D-series. A much larger role to play? Yeah. Well, at least that's what Google tells me. <laughs> I mean, the thing about that this segment of the movie as well is, one, it's really erratically paced. It just sort of stops and starts. Um, but it doesn't really... Because you feel there's probably a better, better version of this movie somewhere. You get more build-up with Santanico. Like, she's the big baddie at the end that they have to defeat, or she summons more vampires, or, you know, she toys with them more. But, like, he's about to take her, and then she does die. But the problem with that moment there is, like, he cannot help but get in kind of a really sex dig when he kills her. Murder, arson, jaywalking kind of complaining. But it's, just, it's a cheap joke that isn't funny. And it's also a really cheap way for her to go. Like, she's taken down by a fucking chandelier. Like, she's fucking, you know, it's like Phantom of the Opera or something. <laughs> I, I do wonder what the ratio of the rest of her screen time is compared to the amount of time she's been dancing and being the focus of Tarantino's It Is. Yes. Because she obviously does not have very many lines, considering how long that dance sequence is. And the rest of the amount of time before she is um, killed, especially the moment she does sort of take control of, char- of the character of Seth, literally says she's going to make him her dog and he is going to obey and she is going to make him suffer. And poof, there's the end of that plot thread and then the hive just pretty much starts to lose it without their queen. Uh, the interesting thing about the, the vampires themselves is, are you familiar with Barbara Creed's theory of the monstrous feminine? Yes, but obviously explain for the audience. So Barbara Creed is an Australian um, fem- film scholar. Um, I believe she's at the University of Melbourne, so if you're in that area, go say hi to her. Um, she wrote a book called The Monstrous Feminine Film Feminism Psychoanalysis, which is a sort of psychoanalytic theory on the idea of the abject and horror, when horror films and the roles of women in them, which are usually related to um, sort of, you know, abject depictions of bodily fluids, different parts of the body, or really screwed up notions of 
what is considered traditionally feminine. So the idea of like, like the monstrous womb isn't one that, is one that she comes up with. The idea of like women giving birth to demon children, like Rosemary's Baby and things, or when is the witches, uh, the brood mother in Dragon Age Origins. Yeah, like women as vampires, women as um, witches, um, women as like the the monstrous mother who emasculates the poor man, kind of like Norman Bates' mother in Psycho. Uh, and I was thinking about that a lot with this movie because it's sort of the most obvious and literal interpretation of that. Uh, you have these women who are this ultimate fantasy, frankly, for a lot of men who are watching the movie and I imagine a lot of men who made the movie. And then there is an attempt to kind of do a twist on that, to subvert that, but it still relies on a level of very deep sexualization. You know, their faces are monstrous, but they still have incredible tits. Okay, not quite the same, but you know that that um, Amazon Women in the Mood episode of uh, Futurama and the Death by Snoo Snoo sequence. <laughs> Uh, I'm just imagining the guys watching this film or the guys looking at the view doing that terrified face and the big grin, the terrified face but instead of, you know, the thought of being uh, well, raped to death uh, it's the, the look at the face then look at the body, look at the face, look at the body the the most monstrous perversion of the concept of the butter face I mean, what it reminded me of as well is there is a feminist frequency video on the concept of the sinister seductress which is this idea of basically making sex, in particular female sexuality, something horrific and monstrous, but still something you kind of want to fuck. No, it's just like there's a moment in Siri Movie 2, and I can't believe I'm even referencing it, but there's a character who has like this sort of beautiful woman body, and then she has a face like kind of like Linda Blair in The Exorcist, so the guy just puts a paper bag on her head. Oh, yes, that sequence. Is that this could have been taken, that it doesn't do? Especially with the women. Like, I would love a version of this movie because I think that there is a way to do, like, a scuzzy movie about strippers who go mental against men. I think that'd be really interesting. But it's one that requires more interrogation of what these men are looking at and why these men are looking. But it also requires a setup of, you know... Well, I think that you could do this movie and still keep the twist that they are vampires. But I would, I would also be interested in seeing a version of this movie where, like, you see build-up. Like the women getting ready for the night, <laughs> just like oh, men are coming in. Honestly, I just, I just might as we keep talking about this, I keep imagining like a vampiric version of like arsenic and old lace, or at least you know, group of vampire women who run sort of a guest house or something, and kill the men who stop by, but only the, the you know, only the rude ones or the ones that they think they can try something. But on the subject of the women who are sexualized and the women who is not, there is a very obvious difference between them. One is the, you know, the, the ideal of the, the pure young white girl and a lot of these uh, vampire women being in Mexico are women of color. Originally, uh, Santanico was to be called something like Blonde Death and played by a blonde woman, obviously. But when uh, Summer Hayek was cast, they changed their concept, obviously. And uh, so then you would have had the, the double issue of a white woman vampire queen on top of an ancient um, Mayan or Aztec 
they're not very clear on this uh, pyramid and temple being surrounded by sexualized women of color who may be her servants is like the um, rest of the hive to her queen. Yeah, there are checks of things on it, and I don't know if character was necessarily at the top of that. They thought about boobs and feet. And hey, wouldn't this be such a cool twist if suddenly our grunge crime movie became a zombie survival thriller, but with vampires and um, Selma Hayek with a snake? Look at the, how underwritten Kate is. You can see glimmers of something, but it's just glimmers. The same with uh, is it Scott, the brother. Again, you see some glimmers, how he's a bit more of a, a daddy's boy than she is a daddy's girl. But again, it, there's not enough time to develop, or at least there's not much enough time given to any of these story elements. Like, had it been... Like, it's a mashup of so many different things and they don't quite get the right ratio. And that's... You know, they're too excited to get to the, the awesome explosion or the so many, so many, so many tits. That character development or consideration of what the situation they've set up regarding things like an entire bar full of women of colour who... Has, seems to be hinted at in some of the, the sequels are not entirely there of their cons of their own consent. It's and of course the number of characters of color in this film who turn out to be monsters or don't make it out alive is a bit of a again think about it. <laughs> oh, because Tarantino sure didn't. Well, that's means do you think Robert Rodriguez who is well, that's because you Robert Rodriguez thought about he is a Mexican-American filmmaker. I imagine for him, this is a really cool opportunity to make the kind of movies that he probably didn't see a lot of growing up, which is the sort of genre stuff he loves, but with people who look like him. Then you've got a story written by Tarantino, which which has as your lead protagonist two very white, privileged men. And that doesn't quite blend either. One of them is himself. Um, do you think that, um, wait, wait, does, anyone, does anyone say the N-word in this movie? I don't know about the N-word, but I think the sheriff or the whatever it is at the start uses the R-word. Alright. I mean, that's but, a bit restrained by Tarantino standards. Yeah, because I, I think this is also sort of early stages before he's like, okay, how much leeway have I got now? And how many times can I turn that into a bad word? And of course, if you think about the time period and the number of things that will actually use the R word without consideration is pretty high. I mean, look at um, mm. early seasons of Buffy and how many times Cordelia says it. Yeah, another reason that watching Buffy is not very fun when you go back with a new understanding of everything. But I thought Joss Whedon was such show people. No offense, we're not doing Buffy. We made you the movie. We're not doing the series. Honestly, we can't top Ginny Trout anyway. Yeah, she's like, go read recaps from someone who likes the show. Or at least really, really likes Anthony Stewart. And she does episodes by episodes anyway. We would not. And there's plenty of Buffy stuff anyway. We do random stuff like um, 
vampire musicals. Yeah. Man, could you imagine could you imagine having the patience to do a seven season show episode by episode? That's like yeah, we're like, oh my god, we're on episode 30 here. <laughs> and if you think about it, it's like 22 times 7. I mean, why would we want to talk about that when we could just talk about vampire musicals more? Uh, there's an interesting religious element. Well, again, it's an element that's never really expanded upon because Harvey Keitel's character is a preacher who's had a crisis of faith after his wife has died. Which feels like a really sort of good... It's a really human element. Yeah. Uh, and he's giving a very human performance. Everyone else is in a Robert Rodriguez Tarantino movie. And Harvey Keitel is grounding this thing because he, you know, he is putting this movie on his back and carrying it. Yeah, and he's a really interesting contrast to the um, toxic masculine of uh, the Gecko Brothers. He diffuses, he diffuses all fights that he can by talking. He, he's calm... He's a central focus. He's a rock. You can see him as a guy who sincerely believed everything that he was preaching in, but even now is patiently thinking about his own crisis of faith. Okay, so he's not made the best decision to drag his teenagers on a weird road trip, but to be honest, who expected that he was going to be hijacked by the Gecko Brothers? But where every other confrontation the Gecko Brothers seemed to have was absolutely ruined by them taking the slightest bit of insult, real or imaginary, and shooting the heck out of everything and everyone to the point where they blow up an entire store and have a death toll in the double figures. He will use his words. He will stop, be calm, and he will use that idea of that toxic masculinity against Seth Gecko with the bit with the, are you, you know, are you that much of a loser you don't realize you've already won? He plays into the idea of the I must be the best. I am not a loser. I am not a failure. I'm, and use, and flips that back on him to get him to calm down. And and because clearly you're you're you've managed to do all of this. You've won. Which is really interesting because I don't even know if the movie necessarily acknowledges that. I don't think the movie realizes that. <laughs> I mean, we've said that a lot earlier this podcast, but I think the problem with. One of the big problems with the Richie Gecko character, the Tarantino one, is that I think the film sees his death as the, the enough of a conclusion for everything that he's done. Forgetting, like, like just ten minutes earlier, before you've like shot him through the hand and you've killed him quite violently, you still gave him like his ultimate fantasy. Yeah, you know, his he's he's achieved his life's fantasy. Where else can he go? He he got to drink booze off an attractive woman's foot and then she jumped on him <laughs> you know how terrible is that and it's all about there's there's no recollection of what he's really done it's all about cis man pain for having to put down his brother because he became a literal physical monster and not the monster he was already inside whether or not it's meant to be sort of a representation of Seth finally realizing he can't deny how much of a monster his brother is. I don't think so. Or if it's just that, well, the rapist does have to die. As it, so how do we how do we do that? But it's not enough for the rapist to just die because he's still, you know, he has all the part of these great lines and these great gun scenes and 
is played by Quentin Tarantino. There's supposed to be some sort of there's some sort of desire of the film or the concept behind it that we are meant to be sort of rooting or think, hey, this guy's actually kind of cool. A rapist, but cool. And that doesn't work. See, I don't know if you're necessarily supposed to think cool. I think you're... That's I don't know if the movie knows. Because I think at least... I think Tarantino has at least enough self-awareness to know that he doesn't look like George Clooney. He can't get away with that shit as much on screen as George Clooney probably could. But also, you could get George Clooney to play the Richie role partly because it's FDR. He's still, like, America's sweat in that aspect. It's maybe too much of a shift from that. But I don't know if you're necessarily supposed to find him cool. I think you're supposed to kind of get a by-proxy thrill from watching this, the feast stuff, certainly. Um, I think you're supposed to at least know one such wonderful over Tarantino, because it's just, it's too obvious otherwise. He's also just very, like, he is an unnerving presence. He's, you know, instantly the moment you see him, you know, he's not the guy you want to be in, alone in a room with. And yeah, Seth's like, yeah, this is going to be the good guy who, to leave with our hostage. I mean, oh, I don't even know. He wasn't even left alone with her that long, was she? Was he? He just went off and got some burgers around the corner. He, he's, he's in the same hotel room as the Fuller family, and within seconds he's already uh, imagining or hearing and seeing uh, Kate asking him to service her sexually. And they do put the camera and everything into his gaze, and it's and it is unsettling. But then, but that's intentionally unsettling in that manner. Whereas I don't think it is. Yeah, yeah, I know. And then they go off and put him in other situations where you know he's one of our and villainous protagonists and everything, and it doesn't quite balance all the way through. I, I'm like I, I I spend the whole thing going, is this movie? Does this movie want me to kind of like Richie, or does he want me just to hate him the entire way through? Because I mean I do hate him, I hate him so much, but the movie keeps doing things that it seems like it's trying to convince me, but I'm not sure if it is. I don't think it is. But I don't think this is necessarily a movie concerned with character. That that's really it, isn't it? There's not enough. Like, what's driving this movie other than it? An RV. <laughs> oh, that, that's, that, that's, that's cheap. That's cheap. Uh, well, Harvey Keitel is driving the movie, literally. That is true. I mean, that's also another interesting element we don't see enough of, which is the idea of, like, a moral quandary between these two remorseless, immoral criminals... And the family they hijacked led by a man who used to be a man of faith and no longer is. Because he gets over that pretty quickly. In fairness, I would get over my crisis of faith pretty quickly if I discovered there were vampires. And they were all going to try and kill me. Yeah, he's like, mm, Okay, there are demons. Time to go bless that holy water. Time to make that holy water. But I, I wonder where the, the storyline would have gone between the, the two opposing groups had there not been that introduction of vampires. And again, I understand why, because it's supposed to flip everything on its head and force these two groups into some form of an alliance. But again, there's that lost characterization and plot threads. 
Harvey Keitel's character, as you said, as I said before, with the, the control of the toxic masculinity thing, he is able to control and diffuse situations. I don't even again. It's all that lost little bits lost in the however many minutes was dedicated to the id of the foot fetish. Because seriously, that was a long dance, a long a lot of focus on her feet. So much. I mean, imagine if it was somebody else uh, and there was another person in control. They'd be like, no, that's a whole lot of time you could be devoting to something else. Cut it. So much these, you know, vampires and the power that they exert. They'll die. But it's, this will never be the end. Is you realize that this club is actually on top of what looks like an Aztec temple. And it is next to a gorge full of old like trucks that the, the truckers have come there in the past mm-hmm. and been trapped you know, caught in their trap and there's clearly been at least one previous attempt by a vampire hunter to deal with the issue considering there's a one of the things that Kate digs up is a crossbow with wooden sta- wooden stakes on it yeah she digs up that and her brother digs up like a bag of condoms <laughs> he does fill them with holy water which, honestly, I will give him points for because ingenuity, but it's like, okay. He's like, okay, I've got myself a water gun and some condoms. I'm good. While well, she's taking more time to find what she's looking for. She's like, I have a sharp, pointy thing. He does manage to kill quite a few of them with his little water gun, so, you know. It's interesting as well is that they do have allies for a brief period. They have two. There are two guys that are also in the bar who kind of don't seem that like they just get up and start fighting immediately. And one of them is a sex machine, and he's played by Tom Savini, like the legendary film makeup artist guy. So I, I'm quite impressed by that. I think he did do the the makeup in the face in this movie. So. Uh, let's have a look. See, so he did Martin, uh, Day of the Dead, you know, Night of the Dawn of the Dead, Night of the. Yeah, he was one of the guys that did the, the like, Romero cell of zombie. He's eventual. I mean, it's a great name. Uh, he also has a gun shaped like cock and balls, because of course he does. It's that kind of movie. And it's not just shaped, it's located there. Oh, it, it is. Surely firing that would rec- create a lot of heat that you wouldn't want near your balls. Yeah, uh, there was another thing somebody pointed out was the issue of recoil, but apparently one of the other actors who served in Vietnam was like, nah, we used to test these kind of guns against my body all the time. No recoil, it doesn't hurt. But honestly, I'm like, I'm surprised that gun wasn't bigger, considering everything else in the movie. It's like, it's a really little gun. I mean, it is interesting that he deliberately goes for the more monstrous style of vampire. Because he very easily could have just gone for, you know, sharp teeth, maybe like red eyes or something. Yeah, maybe the mouth gets a bit bigger, you know, the the not human, but still hot kind of thing. And a few of the vampires do look very monstrous, like the one who's clearly had her belly split open, again like the zombie mother in Braindead. But there was seems to be no lawnmower involved in that. Movie reference. Uh, but 
it's very much a zombie movie just with vampires replacing it, isn't it? It's that we've locked ourselves in the mall kind of situation and have to wait for dawn. Like you've seen this is a version of this movie. I'm sure that these guys have probably tried to do that. But you couldn't make the zombies that sexy. That was probably the issue, whereas you could do that with vampires because then they transform. I imagine there is a possibility that they, they did write a movie like that where like one of them is just like fondling a tit and it comes off in their hand or something. Oh god. It's like that bit in um, Lesbian Vampire Killers where they kill one of the, the ladies in the shower and all that's left are her breast implants. Pile of blood and breast implants. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we can't end on notice so much that. I mean, what does it say about these vampires? Or what does it say about the women? I mean, are explicitly sexualized by the material... But I think there's also supposed to be like a gotcha element, like, haha, these guys leering over these women, they're gonna get it. But it still invites you to leer at the same time. Yeah, it's the... Honestly, it almost feels like in another movie, you know, there would have been like, it would have been one of those twists, like, ha, that hot chick, she's actually a man. Uh. Except. Yeah, it's, it, it, that sort of thing feels like one of that. It's like, haha. You were attracted to a man, you were attracted to a monster. And considering earlier comments in the movie, sort of about homosexuality from the um, Gecko brothers, or rather the implication that he thought that um, Fuller and Son were actually gay lovers, <laughs> uh, not related, sort of says a lot about the type of men that they are. The thing is, like, I should just like, I do still enjoy this movie for what it is, but the thing that it is is just a total ca cataclysm of missed opportunities and id. Yeah, I, I'll sort of be interested in watching the TV show and seeing where they go, but I'll probably have the lingering feeling of why am I watching um, Richie Gecko? Well, that's why you've got rumored TV series that's like, like, level of maturity that's happened there. Because it could be like the. Um, the reboot of uh, Fright Night, where that really, with that maturity, everything changed and grew and improved. But looking at the TV show and how conventionally attractive uh, the guy playing Richie Gecko is, even though they've given him creepy glasses, uh, kind of makes you wonder. I think. It's a good way to spend a couple hours. I mean, if you would like to like take your brain out, put it in the box, and leave it at the door, there's a lot to enjoy here. I will take like unfettered, shameless Ed Tarantino over Tarantino pretending that he has morals, or is trying to make a wider point. And if you turn to a movie with any words said at all, as far as we know, I mean, it's very you know, George Clooney's very cool in it. Oh, we should talk. We didn't even talk about Juliette Lewis. Yeah, so, okay, so I think that one of the things we've acknowledged throughout this uh, discussion is that this is a movie of missed opportunities. It's multiple movies sort of stitched together and coming sort of a Frankenstein's monster of a movie, but not in, so it doesn't quite work, nothing doesn't quite fit together, and so certain threads are dropped, certain elements, we're not quite sure what they wanted the audience to think about them. Obviously we discussed how 
Richie is a horrible rapist and the movie really knows that, but then it also rewards him by getting to get really close to Selma Hayek and living out the fetish of the actor who plays him, not the, perhaps not the character himself. Uh, I don't know what missed opportunities the movie, the TV series takes up, but I think obviously had there been more time, I would have liked to have explored the vampire aspect because, you know, blood-sucking feminists. We would love to see more vampires in things, especially when they do show up in a, in a vampire film. Uh, would you have any recommendations for how they should have touched on it, or are you just happy to leave it be? Well, there we go. We can start talking about Juliette Lewis. But she's definitely she definitely shows herself to at least be nervy enough to get through it. I mean, she's the one that gets hold of the actual vampire blankets. Like, I, w- I wonder whose idea was it when they're in the bathroom and the uh, Border Patrol agent comes in. Uh, whose idea was it for her to pretend to be on the toilet so that the guy would immediately leave? Was that uh, Cess or was that hers? That was her idea. But she's also, like, she's mad at her dad for giving up on his faith she's but she's also doesn't seem that driven by faith herself she's actually you know she's pretty mouthy she's i think she yearns for a status quo you know she wants to be able to go on a decent holiday where they actually stay in nice hotels she wants her dad to go back to being how he was to going back to his you know back to his flock so to speak yeah she may not have been the most faithful of people but she misses the man her father was when he was the most faithful of people because it was it made him happy it was part of his life and he's he's lost she's lost more than her mother in this situation she's lost the man who was her father as well and he's been replaced by this man in the middle of a crisis of faith but we we joke about you know the only character development her brother gets is hey maybe we, we, i'll enjoy my time in this strip bar um but she does too she's not leering at anyone but you know she enjoys a couple of shots she does kind of like you get the feeling that she wouldn't mind letting loose a little bit preferably as one of the guys not as one of the women on stage or anything because so when she says at the end you know seth do you, would you do you mind if you know i tag along with you to el rey there is a sort of potential that actually she would probably be pretty good. Decision not to do that. And I wonder if that like a, a tiny attempt at not redemption for Seth, at least a moment of selfishness. Yeah, it's like a, a stop to actually think about something other than himself and his brother. It's leap back into the he's a monster, not a fucking monster kind of thing. Because, I mean, it probably would have been very easy for him to just go, yeah, come on. And take her as sort of a replacement goldfish, almost. But he, he doesn't. I think I would have if she had gone along, to be honest. It would have been a same thing. Well, there's nothing else to stick together for now. Why not go all out? Or maybe she waits and becomes a new vampire queen or something. Honestly, it's like, you left her there... A woman over the, the temple of vampires that needs a new queen. What do you think's going to happen? Once again, she hasn't got anything else to do. At least. She's like, well, 
I can either come with you, then, you know, find a phone and make some phone calls. Because how is she supposed to explain that to people? What happened to your dad and brother? Because mm-hmm. this especially would immediately fall on her. I mean, but you can't just say the Gecko brothers and they'd be like, oh, okay, I understand. Or just we ran a... F- but then it would just become some sort of, you know, dramatic story about a, a young white woman lost in Mexico. But it's very much a... So what happens now thing that doesn't even really get touched on. She's stuck in the middle of the thing and... Oh, look! Grand reveal! It's sitting on top of a giant temple pyramid. Do you think it was any, like, you know, like any trucker who went out, out back for a smoke and had, like, a peek over the cavern and noticed the thing? Yeah, it's just kind of like, okay, there's a lot more trucks than there are people inside. Oh, that's a weird place to mm. park. How does this place advertise? <laughs> Do people... Because the guy who said we'll meet at the Titty Twister had never even been inside, which does make sense considering he's alive. Yeah, it's like it's like a Yelp page or something. Does it show up on Google Maps now? I think back then it would have been like in the, the penny stuff. Yeah, come to the twee- Titty Twister. We've got all kinds of pussy. Oh, someone had fun writing that whole bit. Yeah, it's just... I wonder how many takes... Because depending on the actor, some of them would have just gone, okay, horse, okay, I'm done, I'm done. <laughs> See, this is what, there's just something fascinating about the fact that Tarantino could have done anything. You know, he Oscar where he'd made Max a lot of money at this point in time, he was already very influential, and this is what he chooses to do. Yeah, I mean, I know a lot of you know directors, they'll go like, yep, I've done my big thing, I, I've got the clout, I can do my, the, my final dream project. Uh, I think uh, the guy who did the Saw movies... His, you know, his dream was to do the Repo, the Genetic Opera movie. And once he got enough clout with the Saw movies, he was like, yep, I can get the funding to do my little dream project. You know, that happens all the time. Uh, but it's kind of a, what? This this is your project? But how often do you find out filming? Because Barry Lenson spent his entire career trying to get toys made. You know, the terrible Robin Williams movie? Oh. Uh, it's like, this is... Isn't that Robots? Sorry? Yeah, like Robot Junk Cusack. Like, that's the movie you spent your entire life on, really? You know, just artists in general, you know, who would have them? I uh, don't know. I mean, I like Reaper of the Genetic Copper, so there's no slight against that. Um... Okay, so I've just cut a whole lot of content regarding. Uh, who goodness knows, uh, Reaper of the Genetic Opera. We've had our usual Tans Vampire cut content. We've discussed kidnapping victims and Sharon Tate and Margot Robbie. None of that content you will ever hear because it's useless. We did not discuss Sam Neill's wine, so I am plugging it here now. Uh, which clearly means it's we've, we've reached the end of what we can really think and talk about. Plus, Kaylee's yawning all the time, even though it's actually in the morning. Never mind that I got up for like the first half of this podcast at like 6.30 in the morning to record. So, you know, she can just deal with it, getting up at 8.30 in the morning and all that. (laughs) Okay. But anyway, there's clearly a sign that we need to wrap this up 
and talk about what we're going to do next time. Next time on the Blood Sucking Feminists. <laughs> Can we have a musical cue for that moment? Next time on Blood Sucking Feminists Z. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> Okay, so next month we are going back to the world of Dracula because there are a lot of Draculas out there. We're going to be watching the 2006 adaptation on the BBC starring um, Mark Warren as Dracula, Sophie Miles as Lucy Westerner and David Suchet of Poirot fame as Van Helsing. Um, there are ways for you to get hold of it. It's pretty easy. That's all I'll say. But make sure you do your homework in preparation for us to talk about syphilis a lot. But don't Google syphilis. Kaylee did that last time we discussed syphilis on the show. She regrets it. Don't Google syphilis. I Googled syphilis and was like, huh, okay. <laughs> so, you know, it's all about your stomachs. So until next time, so until next time, we can be found on our website, bloodsuckingfeminist.com. We're on Twitter, at bloodsuckingfem. We have a Facebook page, and each of us have our own Twitter feeds if you'd like to see us talk about something other than vampires. Kaylee is... Do you want us to just spell it? <laughs> oh, what, Pajiba? Oh, you, you're at Pajiba as well, yes. Kaylee is at Pajiba, which sounds like... <laughs> nope, I don't even want to know. Uh, I was going to say... I was going to say, how do we spell Kaylee? Because you, you spell it Scottish. Oh, so I thought you were telling me to plug my website. Sorry, like, not my website, where I write for. It was a very vague comment you were making. I didn't know what you were talking about. No, but you can find me on Twitter at C-E-I-L-I-D-H-A-N-N. -N. If you just type in Achilleanne. How do you say that? Not ceiling fan, as someone tried to say. <laughs> okay, because it's Scottish. Ceiling fan. <laughs> and I'm on Twitter as C Slavova. Uh... If you're looking for movie criticism and other sorts of pop culture, Kaylee also writes for Pajiba.com and a few other websites. She'll link to them weekly on her Twitter feed. If you want to get a hold of us, uh, we can be emailed at fangmail at bloodsuckingfeminist.com. And until next time, check the reviews of your vampire bar before you stop in. <laughs>